I'm sorry I'm not as Marie Antoinette as you, okay, Dean Murdoch? I, oh. <laughs> well played. Well played. This is Sandwich Land with Dean Murdoch and Naomi Devine. Hey, Dean. Hey, Naomi. So I have a question for you. All right. Uh, milk or dark chocolate? Oh, well, I would try and pretend like I'm super healthy and I go with really dark chocolate. And we actually do have 95% cocoa chocolate in the cupboard. But I am definitely, uh, I definitely eat the milk chocolate when we have it in the house. And is it, is it the kind that provides you like with joy and delight? It is. Yes. It's one of those things where it's like the afternoon coffee, if it has a chocolate almond with it, mm. you know, that mm -hmm. it's like just the little things that, that give you that something special for the day. Nice. How about nice. you? Uh, yeah, milk chocolate all the way. And um, I have a good friend and he used to work with me and he is a, a big time like chocolate snob. He wouldn't, that's not a term he would use. That's, that's no. my definition for it. So he's, you know, dark all the way. And every now and then I like to actually just message him from out of nowhere and say, I just enjoyed some really great milk chocolate. Like, why don't you come over to the good side? And he always has a really good retort. And so uh, I want to be uh, a little dig back in him uh, too, now that we've uh, talked about it on the podcast. So it was good to hear. I didn't know though, that you were also a milk chocolate fan. So this is good. We're like two for two. We both prefer cake over pie. The cake. And we get and the milk chocolate. Yeah. Dark chocolate. Yeah. These are, these are important things. I mean, when, <laughs> when people sit us down and say, you know, what, how do you relate to each other? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, clearly it's, it's the sugar. <laughs> those, <laughs> those are the things that are the most, they're foundational to this relationship. That's right. The sugar is doing the work of diplomacy, really the hard work of diplomacy, I think. <laughs> I think it can, you know, if we all just sat down, maybe had some cake together, obviously with coffee, the world would be a much better place to live in. Yeah, I like what you're describing. I'm I'm getting into your vision here. Um, and speaking of vision and thinking too about diplomacy, we have a special episode here where we are responding to what our listeners told us they wanted, aren't we? We are. Yeah. Right. You know, immediately we, after the first episode, we started getting feedback from people about the kinds of topics they'd want to hear. And there were some really good ones that came in. And, and today is an example of, of exactly one of those requested or suggested topics. Yeah. So we have four young people in Sanish, or, you know, as old people like to refer to them as the youth, the youth. <laughs> <laughs> have joined us <laughs> which is wonderful I, it was it was really wonderful getting a chance to speak to them and we have um young people representing um the university of victoria um side of things in saanich and um high school um as well which is great we have isaac a third year student at the university of victoria who's studying political science and business he has a keen interest in politics at all levels and one day he hopes to be an elected official in some capacity mm, dangerous we also have yes. miller <laughs> miller is a second year political science student at uvic as well and hails from smithers bc but will be calling uh, sandwich his winter home for the foreseeable future you don't meet a lot of people who consider sandwich their winter home but yeah. 
that's that's Miller's. That's what Miller's going to do. Mm-hmm. We're also going to talk to Kelvin, a grade twelve student at Reynolds Secondary School. While Kelvin doesn't plan to study political science, he's been interested in why the world is the way it is since a young age. And he's quite the character, and I think the listeners are going to really enjoy hearing from Kelvin. And Annabelle is a grade 12 student at Reynolds as well, and she's a pianist and also has a really rad dog named Gibbs. And we even hear from Gibbs for a very brief part of the interview. We do. So for those of you who are dog fans out there, this is the episode for you as well. (laughs) And just before we get into the interviews, we also want to acknowledge that we are coming to you from the unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people, today known as the Songhees and Esquimalt, and the Sinchothan-speaking people known as the Wasanic. We recognize that their historical relationships with the land continue to this day and that we continue to benefit from living and working on these lands as well. All right, Dean, what do you say? Shall we get into the interviews? Let's do it. Great. Let's kick off this discussion right. We really want to know, Miller and Isaac, do you prefer cake or pie? And the stronger the opinion, the better. And that's a great question. I would say it's got to be cake for me. Uh, And the reason why is for my birthday every single year, uh, there's this one cake. It's been passed down probably since... I think, you know, three or four generations ago, like my, my mom's grandma's grandma kind of thing. Uh, it's a simple, just vanilla white cake with cut in half. Um, typically speaking, if you're like a true British, you're truly British and that's, you're making it authentic. You fill the center with jam and then some white icing on top. Uh, we, 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 I like it a little bit sweeter. So I go with icing in the middle and icing on top. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had that every single day or every single birthday for you know, my 21 years of birthdays. And uh, that's, that's what I got to go with a a, a nice cake, Uh, pretty much just exactly that one there. Wonderful cake for the tradition. (laughs) Interesting. Um, That, that, that does sound delicious. Um, But I'm glad that you said cake, because now I have something to sort of work off of considering the fact that I think pies are in general, uh, superior in terms of quality to cakes. And I, I think I've had more good pies um, then I've had good cakes and I've had fewer bad pies and I've had bad cakes. So I, I think the sort of the versatility of the pie as a, as a concept, uh, the, the fact that you can have crust in a variety of fillings, uh, the, the sort of textural contrast, and in general, pies just aren't quite as sweet. So personally, my cup of tea, I find like a lot of times uh, cakes can just be a little bit over the top you know, you get the the classic kind of grocery store cake yeah. with a lot of like cheap icing on top oh, yeah. and it's yeah. just a bit too much. And so the, like, you can have a great, a great cake, but I think in general, the quality and the consistency provided by a pie just sort of lends it to, to my own tastes personally. All right. Well, what do you think, Dean? I mean, Miller's clearly got the wrong opinion on this. One. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that we've got an even split, though. I mean, this tells me that you two were both the right people to bring in here today because we want differing perspectives. So this uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're already off on a great start with a 50 50 split on this answer. Well, they do say that your choice in either cake or pie defines who you are as a person. Right. So, I mean, yes, 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. So we found out now. Now we can move into the questions. (laughs) We've we've had this uh, Twitter conversation about whether or not cheesecake is actually cake. What do you think? Is cheesecake cake? 
I mean, it, it well, has a crust, right? So I, I think I want to say it's a pie. Like you could have, you know, a key lime pie and it's, you know, it's not uh, a typical filling. It's, it's it obviously like gelatinous or whatever, but, um, and I think that's much more similar to a cheesecake than any, anything you like an actual cake is. So I, I have to go with the crust plus some kind of filling equals pie argument in this case. I mean, it, maybe it's kind of asking, like, is a hot dog a sandwich, right? Like a hot dog has two sides of bun and something in the middle, right? But yep. uh, maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's just a cheesecake. Oh, a totally popular, different species. Yeah. Popular debate on Twitter there, Isaac. And I know this <laughs> Twitter bio, you want to be famous. And I think that perhaps disagreements like this could be a way to help launch you into Twitter game if you... Uh, if I'm trying. I'm trying my best. I uh, I don't have any tweets that have gone viral yet, but you know th that's a goal one day. <laughs> yeah, persistence will will help. Uh, exactly. Will help exactly. Well, thanks for playing along with us. And we're uh, we're sort of wondering. You know, there's a lot going on, of course, in the world right now. And what is what is the thing or things maybe <laughs> that you worry about the most? Uh, I mean, I can give it a go right off the bat here. I think. So I'm, I'm, like I said before, I, I'm a third year student here at, at UVic um, and I've, I've lived in Victoria uh, for three years. Um, I was born here, uh, but moved away uh, just up island because my parents wanted a, a bigger yard and uh, came back in my first year. And in my first year, I lived in housing, uh, in, in student housing at, at UVic. And, uh, you know, it was awesome because uh, at that point, UVic still had a, a first year guarantee, uh, meaning that I was guaranteed to be able to live in residence um, because of my status as a first year. Um, and that was amazing. I really enjoyed living in residence and the food was great. Uh, and then unfortunately in March of my first year, we were kicked out because of COVID and I went home and uh, in January of 2021, well, actually I should say in, in November of 2020 decided that I wanted to move back to Victoria, even though, um, you know, the semester was still online there in January, I, I decided I wanted to move back. And so my friend Owen and I started um, looking for houses and, you know, this is, keep in mind, this is the time when UVic isn't in session uh, in person. You know, there's, there's, from my understanding, I, I couldn't imagine that many people trying to find a house. Um, and my friend Owen and I, I think we probably uh, had to go and view with the help of my parents and, and their car about 10 places um, before we even kind of got an offer to, uh, to rent. Um, and it's, I think, you know, that's kind of a, a general theme and, and just, you know, if you can imagine how difficult it was when UVic wasn't in person, um, you know, in the summer of 2021, we decided, uh, we decided to move out of that other place and find a new place. And again, just really difficult trying to find a spot. And, and this is again, when UVic hadn't even announced it was back in person. Uh, and I know, you know, my friends now that we're back in person in, in September of last year, tried to uh, find a place to live and it's almost impossible. And I think just the housing here, um, you know, uh, the, the vacancy rates below 1% in Victoria. Um, and uh, it's, it's, I think uh, maybe not one, I believe it was 3% um, a couple of years ago and, and it's plummeted below 2.2. I think it's close to 1% now. And it's just so difficult to find housing, um, especially and unfortunately with the University of Victoria tearing down, I think it was two or three residences and actually getting rid of that first year guarantee um, now uh, for this, this year. You know, you have first years coming into Victoria 
and they have nowhere to live and they're having to go and find a place to rent. And I didn't even know what like renting was when I was 18, 17, actually in my first year. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, and just one of the things I've realized living in Victoria is just the lack of affordable housing, uh, just for university students in particular, that's just because that's my demographic. I've talked to my friends is just really, really difficult. Miller, what about you? What, uh, what is the thing that keeps you up at night? Yeah. I mean, I really, I definitely echo the, the housing, uh, issue. It's, it's, um, you know, finding a place with my girlfriend last summer was like excruciating. Um, I was, uh, busy, uh, fighting wildfires and I was like having to be in a parking lot, calling someone, trying to get uh, some kind of something working. Uh, we were eventually successful, but it was like a very stressful, um, difficult process. So I definitely echo the housing, uh, issue. And it's like a, it's a huge problem for everyone, but especially, you know, students uh, and sort of our younger demographic, but sort of more generally, I think um, as one key issue, um, especially recently, and that's been brought up really in the last year, um, I think there's a declining trust in government. And I think that you can almost name any one uh, specific issue and it's impossible to fix unless you first fix this declining trust in government. Um, I think that, uh, you know, climate change, housing, um, you know, even the opioid uh, pandemic, uh, you know, the current pandemic that's going on, um, all of these things require good government and they require, uh, you know, proactive, innovative policy and investment, which can really only come from government. They're the ones with the money. And if you can't restore the public's trust in government, you will not be able to garner support for these kinds of policies that we just need so badly. Um, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing. Um, you know, do you, does government spend money in order to gain public trust or do they not spend money because the public doesn't trust them in the first place? So I think it's a really uh, a, a bit of a, an intractable problem that we were at here. And you know, you're seeing protests uh, over the COVID mandates, which were sort of scientifically backed. And I think it's emblematic of this declining trust in government. What, what do you attribute that to? What do you think is the reason why we're seeing this erosion of trust in government? I think, I think it's been happening for a long time. Um, I don't think that you can blame any one government, any one political party or politician. Um, you know, this happens a lot. People pin it on one, one person, but it's, it's a huge problem. And I think it's really, I mean, it's probably been going on for a hundred years, at least um, a slow decline in the trust in government, but most recently, I mean, we've seen economic conditions for the majority of Canadians sort of stagnate or deteriorate since at least the 90s. Um, and when people's, people aren't able to sort of reach their goals in life, when they aren't able to you know, afford dental care, for example, if they're not able to afford housing, um, their trust in government to provide the things that they need is going to decline with that. Um, so again, it's kind of that chicken, chicken or the egg thing. Does mm-hmm. government provide those services to win back support or do they sort of acquiesce and continue to, you know, cut and sort of reduce the, the services that they provide? Mm-hmm. I think this declining trust in government um, is an important observation. And I'm wondering, Miller, do you have a lack <clears throat> of trust in the government? And then Isaac, I'm wondering the same for you. So, so where is your, where do you sort of sit on the trust barometer in government yourself? Um, personally, I have pretty 
deep trust in government. I think that government has done many good things. There's obviously been mistakes that have been made, but overall, um, I think that people in government are really trying their best. Um, and there's just a lot of really hard problems to deal with, a lot of wicked problems that aren't don't have any easy solutions. Um, and sometimes things are sort of out of their control. So I, I have quite a bit of trust in government, but I also sort of realize that there are um, there are potential bad actors, and there are um, you know those that I would not trust nearly nearly so much. No, Isaac. Yeah, I think if I was just to jump in there, um, one of the things that I find really interesting, and that I think um, myself, like I do, I, uh, you know, I, I, I trust people in government, and I think they all have the best interests of the people that they're representing in mind. But I think um, to go back to to Dean's question uh, a little bit earlier there, um, you know, what specifically is it that erodes trust in government? I think from my perspective, it's not following through with what you promise in your platform. And I think we see this uh, with federal uh, elected uh, officials. Uh, we see this with provincially elected officials. And we see this with the municipal elected officials as well. We see these amazing, uh, you know, optimistic platforms. We see um, things that we really like to see as the, um, the, the body that is electing these officials. We see amazing uh, goals. Uh, and then over the four years, and and. It, it just doesn't happen. And, and I'm, I'm no, I'm not, you know, uh, that out of touch to understand that it's a lot more difficult to get things done than, you know, just doing it. Um, but, you know, we see things like uh, specifically on issues like climate change and I'm, you know, maybe this is more federal, but, you know, we see these, these vast commitments ever since like the 1997 Kyoto protocol, we see these, these commitments, th these, these things that officials say they're going to do, but then they put zero policy in place to actually achieve these goals. Um, and so I think like just that optimism that, um, yeah, voters feel uh, is often eroded because of the history of politicians just simply not following through with what they say they're going to do. And it definitely creates a cynicism. I think you're right. And it's one of the things that drives people away from participating in the process because you, you know, you get the shrug and like, well, they're all the same. They make empty promises. Why should I bother to show up? So I, I you know, our, our follow-up question for you both on the, the topics that you chose is what can government do about that? So why don't we start by talking about what government can do about this, this lack of trust, this cynicism that, that, is, uh, that seems to be growing? Yeah, I think, um, like, as with anything, there's no silver bullet. bullet. There's, there's really never going to be one specific solution that is the end all and be all of, of solving trust or any other issue. Um, but there are, like, steps that they can take. And, like, really, this following through on commitments is a big part of that. Um, but first, you need to sort of figure out how governments can follow through on commitments. I actually think that the current um, NDP liberal um, uh, agreement is a good example of what can be done to build support for policies that uh, Canadians genuinely want and need. Um, and so that kind of working across the aisle, um, trying to build support, and I'm sure this was a, a process that has been ongoing for quite some time before it was publicly announced, to build support so that you can actually achieve those policies. Because a lot of the time it becomes a very electioneering sort of um, uh, showmanship of 
who can sort of make the, the best promises. And then once they sort of get elected, they can figure out what to do with them. Um, and so that kind of coalition building um, can be really important. Um, and then I suppose um, like more dialogue, um, more following through on these kind of commitments and, and trying to engage um, communities sort of where they're at. Um, like right now we, we have, a, there's a bit of a spat going on uh, with, between the uh, union of BC municipalities and the province over housing. And I, I think that it's maybe sort of emblematic. There's, there's, there's a lot of um, actors that end up uh, seeing their interests specifically invested in different levels of government. And that's potentially something that needs to be broken down over time. Um, you know, we should, they should all be working towards the same goals. And yeah, it kind of adds to that disin, disingenuity of it all, or at least that people perceive as disingenu uh, being disingenuous. I definitely agree. And I think, you know, again, to me, uh, you know, it comes back to just that whole platform uh, and like following through with your promises. I am someone who is quite active in following what governments do and what uh, politicians, you know, follow through with when they say that they're going to follow through it. And I love the point uh, that you made, Miller, you know, saying it does become kind of a competition to see who can promise the best things. And then whether that gets followed through with is another question. And I think from my perspective, if I see a politician who at the end of their, their term in their elected office can go through and confidently say, four years ago, I promised to do this and I promised to do this and that and so on and so forth. And I've done this and I've, I've followed through on, on these three promises. Unfortunately, I will admit I was not able to do this because of this, you know, uh, don't sweep it under the rug. And I guess that's really, if I saw a politician doing that, man, you'd have my vote for, for, for generations, for however long you ran. Because I think at the end of the day, what makes democracy run is transparency. And that's the, the biggest key for me is just politicians being transparent in, in what they can realistically achieve. And again, I do realize like, you know, like you said, if you don't overpromise, then maybe you won't even get elected. Maybe you have less of a chance of getting elected. So maybe that's a deeper problem with the actual political system that we have and, and that kind of thing. But I think from my perspective, yeah, it's following through with what you promised to do. Good advice there for um, so elected politicians and anyone wanting to run and to fix this problem. Um, Isaac, you mentioned housing is the issue that kind of keeps you up at night. Had a good example, you know, how that impacted your life. And so, yeah, what can governments do about that? Yeah, well, thank you. I think it's a, it's a really, really important question. And, you know, I, I was actually doing a little bit of research before the podcast because I wanted to come prepared with something to kind of throw in your faces a little bit and kind of say, Dean, you know, what what can you do for me when you're for, for us when you get elected? Um, and, you know, I, I was looking and, you know, I saw something along the lines of um, last year. Uh, well, well, as of right now, the average price for a one-bedroom home in Victoria is $1,855. That's an 18% increase from last year, whereas inflation in Canada was 2.4% from last year. And 
you know, are those two statistics, you know, generally speaking, you know, relatable? Maybe, maybe not. But I think my point being is why has housing, why have housing prices grown so much uh, when, you know, the actual price of commodities in the, in the world haven't grown at the same rate. And I think that comes down to the availability of housing and the regulation of housing uh, within the, 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 you know, the municipality of Saanich and Victoria in general. Um, you know, the, gov- the, the government of Saanich currently has a, a plan. Uh, it's their, their 2021 housing strategy, it's called. But this plan uh, involves 73 actions over a 10-year framework. But in 10 years, we're all going to be gone. And in 10 years, you know, that's still 10 years of people who can't afford houses and who can't find a house. Um, And I think something really, really specifically that I came across in some of this research is uh, at the moment, uh, there was a really awesome article in the University of Victoria paper, The Martlet, which outlined a student who could not afford housing and could not find housing who is living out of his van uh, in Victoria. Um, but right now, um, in the sandwich bylaws, it's illegal to sleep on the, in your car on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't one of those short-term solutions, instead of that 10-year plan, don't get me wrong, the 10-year plan's great. It's going to do some great things. But, you know, for those 10 years, uh, you know, when you're, you're building up and you're, you're making uh, this, this, this new housing uh, kind of strategy a thing, uh, you know, why don't we... we, we change something simple, like making it okay to sleep in your car on the side of the road uh, in, you know, why don't we designate a parking lot? Currently, you're not allowed to sleep overnight uh, in on campus at UVic. Why don't we designate one parking lot in the, on the campus of University of Victoria? You know, campus security is there all night anyway, where one parking lot, maybe right outside the CARSA center or something where students can sleep in their car if they need to, you know, really simple things like that is I think something that government can do to really, really uh, make like direct change. Um, in my perspective. Yeah, that's a really, really, really key issue, in my opinion, is those short-term, what can we do right now solutions? I have um, a shorter question for both of you, and it's, do you vote in every election that you're eligible to vote? And do you notice if your peers are voting as well? Um, I personally um, do vote in every election that I've been able to vote, which is like three now. thanks to our our, our slightly more frequent elections lately. Um, And um, I think, I think most of my peers are voting. Um, It's, it's really hard to say. I think most of the people that I'm sort of around are more politically engaged um, than perhaps average, but um, I think there's maybe a a bit of an upswing, but that could be completely unrepresentative of, 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 of the average, but I think it is, doing better than maybe it once was in terms of youth participation in politics? Yeah, another really awesome question because I think it's so important. And and I'm with you, uh, Miller. I, I vote. Um, I voted in, you know, I'll be honest, in the federal elections and the provincial elections. I can't say I've ever voted in a, a municipal election. Um, we'll change that I, this year, though, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually has... I've only been able to vote for, for since 2019. I'm sure there's been a, when was the last mayor of Saanich election? Oh, you're right. This will be your first opportunity okay. to vote in a BC municipal election. Okay, perfect. Well, that's, that's good to know that I haven't missed an important, important one yet. <laughs> no, not that they're not exactly. all important, but um, 
that that's that's good that's awesome so and i think like yeah from my perspective as well my friends um definitely vote in in yeah in federal elections although like i said good to hear that we haven't missed a spanish municipal election yet uh but i think the big yeah the big thing that i always think of when when voting is and i'd love to hear your guys's perspectives on this but would, would you rather someone vote just to vote um, if they're not educated on the platforms of the people they're voting there, they could be voting for, or would you rather them not vote at all? And I think that's kind of where I'm at with some of my friends is saying, I, I want to encourage them to vote and I try my best to educate them uh, or give them the tools, I should say, to educate themselves on the platforms of the people that they could be voting for. But I find they're often reluctant and kind of go with those like snappy news headlines and, uh, and I don't know if that's, I guess everyone obviously has the right to vote and should vote for whoever they want to. But I, I wonder, you know, if, if that's an interesting perspective to have is whether you want people voting if they're not really 100% sure on the, the policies. Mm, yeah, good question. I encounter this a lot when I work in elections and, the, you know, this general debate. And I'm interested in your take on it, you know, of course, too, Dean. So thanks for the question to us, Isaac. Yeah, um, in, an informed electorate, of course, as we know, it's like almost cliche, is important to a healthy democracy. Um, but would we put things just as important like driver, your driver's license up to like voluntary, you know what I mean, like participation? And we don't. And it's interesting to me that we don't require voting. And this is, of course, the subject of much debate in Canada and maybe a controversial take. But after spending several election cycles and a few decades in politics, I would say this. Um, I, think, I think in an advanced democracy such as Canada, I think we're, I don't think engagement alone is going to compel more people to vote. I think we, you know, we see consistent voter um, turnout declines and I think we need to compel people to vote like they do in Australia. And I find that as soon as you say that there is a lot of dramatic reaction, like, oh, are you gonna throw everyone in jail? <laughs> you know, things like that too. And of course, culturally, you know, Australians have had a long time to adjust to this and that's not really how it plays out. And it's only in like, you're given several opportunities, you know what I mean, to, to um, before, you know, jail, I guess would be, you know, the answer. And it doesn't have to be necessarily constructed that way here. But I think we should be open to the discussion because what else do we do? And my follow-up to you after Dean answers would be, you know, if you don't notice youth voting, because this is the thing, a lot of politicians will come in and they will say, we have to get the youth vote. And if the youth voted, you know, they would overturn, you know what I mean, like elections and, and, you know, sort of political direction in Canada. But what we know from generation over generation is that we don't see a high youth voter turnout either, despite lots of inroads being made, you know, to get younger people to vote. And so, um, and so I think that that's actually, I think some political parties know that that's the case and they take advantage of it and they cater to older voters, right? Because of it. So youth are left out when we don't have some form of greater participation and I also think if you had to require people to vote, would that not give them more motivation to become informed rather than just seeing it as a civic duty, you know, seeing it as mm -hmm. a perhaps grumbling responsibility? Is that better or worse? I think we need to talk more about it. That would be mm -hmm. my my take on it. Uh, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with you, um, particularly how some politicians, some political parties will sort of cater to that older voting demographic or the, at least the folks that they know who are most likely to show up to vote. And it does mean that younger voters then get marginalized and their perspectives uh, or, or things that they're interested in maybe don't get reflected in the election dialogue. And of course, that further erodes their participation. But I, I think that just thinking about Miller's comment about cynicism, 
I think that's what needs to be addressed. I think that, you know, people are not going to show up if they don't believe that it's going to make a difference or they will show up and they'll, you know, spoil their ballot. And we need to make sure that we're one talking to uh, the electorate in a way about issues that actually are meaningful to them. And so if you want youth to show up to vote, then you need to get engaged on what you can actually do on those issues that are going to be important to them. Obviously housing uh, a key among those. Uh, And then similarly, I think people need to be convinced that uh, it actually does make a difference and that empty promises are not going to be accepted. So in the same way, if we're going to hold voters to account that they have to show up, then I think there needs to be a mechanism to hold those politicians to account when when they're not prepared to fulfill their their commitments. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point as well, Dean, is is yeah holding those those politicians to account, like you said. And I wonder as well, maybe I think too simplistically about these things, but I wonder, like, if it has anything to do with the ease of elections as well, like the uh, access to uh, voting stations and stuff like that. I know a couple of my friends, they tried to vote in the federal election, uh, but the lines were out the door a couple hours long, uh, just over here in, in Saanich. Uh, and they left. They said, I, I, you know, I have homework. I have, I have other things to do. It's a Tuesday. I, I can't vote. Uh, I was, you know, thankful enough to vote in advance polling. Uh, and I wonder, you know, if we are trying to engage the, the youth specifically, you know, on the topic of this upcoming election in Saanich, I wonder, you know, it, you know, is it only one day to vote? Can we make it multiple days? Uh, is there an advanced polling? Like, like, how do we make it so that the youth, you know, a lot of us don't have cars, right? How do we make it so that it's easy to bus to a polling station? Uh, can we do one on campus? That's like my ultimate goal is having voting stations on campus. Um, that kind of ease of election as well is it will really aid in the voter turnout, I think, specifically with students. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree with that. I think access to voting is um, just incredibly key. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, from the other side of the table, those who want to restrict people from voting, they, they very directly make it more difficult to access polling stations. You know, they reduce the number of polling stations in poorer neighborhoods. They, you know, in the, sorry, in the United States, I'm talking, um, you know, they, they, they've passed laws in certain uh, American states where it's illegal to provide assistance to those standing in line. It's illegal to hand out water to those standing in, you know, six, seven hour polling lines. And um, just based on that alone, I think it's really important to make sure that we sort of cherish and Im- improve access, the access that we do have to uh, polling stations in Canada and make it easier. Um, you know, a polling station on campus would be amazing. Um, there's a lot, yeah, students are busy. Uh, you know, youth are busy. We, all, we often have uh, irregular schedules. We're not really into working nine to five yet. So it's often hard to plan and work around. Uh, there's lots of commitments. So that's definitely something that should be worked on. And I think more generally, um, for how to get people to, to vote, um, people need to care uh, and people need to think that the election is going to make a difference. So exactly sort of echoing what Dean said um, about cynicism, I, th- I think we need to make sure that people um, believe and feel that their vote and the eventual uh, result of the election is going to materially uh, impact them and it's going to make a difference for them. 
Thank you for that, Miller. Isaac, what do you think? What would get more youth out to vote or more people out to vote in general? I love that point that you made. And I think when it comes down to it for me, I remember uh, going back yeah, again to the federal election in, in 2019, I guess it was, uh, there were polling stations on campus for, uh, for a week uh, and you could vote in any riding in Canada for a week in advance polling on campus uh, before the election happened. And I remember every single one of my friends who I asked, I said, you know, have you voted? Uh, and they said, no. And I said, oh man, well, it's so easy. You just show up to the sub, you, you give them your, your ID. They check what riding you were in and you vote in that riding. They could have been from Ontario, from uh, the Northwest Territories. It didn't matter. So I, I think uh, one of the biggest things is, is getting a polling station on campus. Uh, really, really going straight to the core of where the youth are. Let's be honest, you know, the majority of, of people aged 19 to 24 in Victoria are probably going to UVic or probably go to UVic for some purpose at some point in time. And so uh, I just, I think that's, that's my, my perspective is, is get something to UVic. Miller and Isaac, thank you so much for, for answering our questions and sharing your perspective. It's been such a treat to hear from you. Thank you for the, the chance to, to get your thoughts. And I'm sure there are many, many folks out there who, uh, who share similar concerns and are probably nodding along in approval uh, or in agreement with, with what you've had to say. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to the listener feedback on, on this conversation you know, as well. So yeah, thank you both. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's been awesome. And Dean, uh, Naomi, good thank luck. You. I'd love to be a part of maybe the some feedback you get when hopefully, Dean, you're you're elected uh, as mayor. So, uh, yeah, great. Yeah, I look forward to that, Isaac. Absolutely. Thanks for for that willingness to to be that that feedback. I think that's helpful. That another thing we could have covered is a, a way that uh, people in power stay grounded and stay connected to those issues that are relevant to the people they support. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you so much. This was a really fun, interesting experience. It's nice to talk about these issues. Great to see that you're doing these kind of engagement efforts that are needed so badly. So thank you. there. Okay, well, welcome, Annabelle and Kelvin. And we have like a really important question to ask you to begin this interview. And Annabelle, what I want to know is, do you prefer cake or do you prefer pie? Um, I feel like I would go with pie, just because I feel like I'm always like, I'd always be in a mood for pie, but not always in the mood for cake. But that's, I don't know, that's personal preference. Always in a mood for pie. Yeah. Okay. Okay, do you have a favorite pie? Um, I feel like cherry pie is always a good one. Wow. Yeah, I really like cherries, actually. So that, or like strawberry rhubarb, that's always a good one. And are you like an ice cream with pie kind of person? I kind of, it depends. It depends on the day. I like, I kind of like them, like, this is weird. I like having pie and ice cream, but like not, like, together like a bowl of ice cream (laughs) like if they're together like if the ice cream's on the pie like no they can't be touching the twain shall meet yeah like if i have my like pie and i eat it and then i'm like okay now now i can have some ice cream yeah you're primed for ice cream yeah exactly that's a fascinating process yeah it's a process makes makes a long dessert 
period, I think. That's going to be I'm, longer than dinner. Yeah, I'm like, this is one thing like all my friends, close friends know about me. I'm like the slowest eater. People will be like done their meals and I'm like two bites in. Uh, okay, I can understand that. When I was a little kid, my aunt and uncle and cousins would tease me. They would say I ate so slow that I, I you know, they'd be on to dinner before I'd be finished breakfast. So I can empathize. Uh, Kelvin, over to you, cake or pie? See, I feel like that's a layered question, right? Because you <laughs> be prepared for a lot of that sentence, right? Because I feel like it depends on the quality of both, right? Because your average cake is better than your average pie. But I feel like the best pie is better than the best cake. It's it's about the relative like a five out of 10 cake is better than a five out of 10 pie. A 10 out of 10 pie is better than a 10 out of 10 cake. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Couldn't disagree with you both more. And yeah. Then, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sad now at the beginning of the interview. <laughs> what does this say about the, our future? If this is the perspective of the youth. Oh no. Why does this cancel the rest? Like, yeah, I think no. not everything. I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not as Marie Antoinette as you, okay, Dean Murdoch? I, <laughs> well played. Well played. Thank you for that. So, like, let's let's dive into the conversation and say, like, you know, we know there's a lot going on in the world right now. And it's quite the time, you know, to be to be young um, and alive. And so what's the thing, you know, that you worry about most, Annabelle? I would definitely say, um, like, the climate crisis going on. And I know that that's a very, like, I guess, like, typical answer, but I, I think it is so just concerning because um, I think often we feel pretty, like, powerless as young people, even though, like, we still can do things. There's just, mm-hmm. there's not, like, a, like, anything we can do that has, like, a massive, massive impact that's going to, like, change the whole thing around. Um, like, a lot of that is on um people with like lots more power and people in like really high positions so I think that like sense of kind of feeling a little bit powerless is like for Mm -hmm. sure contributes to like um worrying about the climate um and then like also that's basically our future like our entire world so Mm -hmm. um I think that can be really like like troublesome um I also like kind of worry about just like financially like in the future kind of um because like just everything is getting way more expensive especially like where we live um that is like pretty like I worry about that because um in like 10 years like I don't know if I'll be able to buy a house here or not like I just that's kind of like a big dream so yeah Those are probably the two things. Yeah. And if you if you had your pick, this is where you'd want to stay right now. Like that's your you'd like to stay um, in Victoria and buy a, buy a home here. That would be the ideal. Or what, what are you thinking? Um, I feel like obviously like I haven't done a ton of traveling and I would really like to. But like I love Victoria. Like it's just so beautiful here. And like um, a lot of our family is here. So like that's really nice thing and um I just feel like it's a really nice like place to live just 
like the community here is is really amazing so I would definitely say like this would be like I would I would love to live here but it's not like the only option mm-hmm. yeah yeah fair enough thanks for that and Kelvin what about you is this a layered answer for you as well what what, what worries to you the most I definitely agree with Annabelle that the climate crisis is the most pressing emergency facing all of us today. And while there may be other issues, um, you know, economic growth, housing prices, um, and, you know, discrimination and all these other things, the climate crisis is at the core because it exasperates everything else. Right. Um, Economic inequality only grows on both a national and international scale with the climate crisis. Those with the least are hit the hardest. If we're talking about housing prices now and the supply of housing, the supply of housing is going to go down if half of it is underwater. So the climate crisis is at the core of our future. But. I kind of disagree with a defeatist mentality that I hear a lot of youth espouse that, oh, it's frustrating because we can't do anything and the government won't do anything because there's nothing that's better for, you know, large polluters than that feeling of despair. Because if you don't think that anything can change, if you don't think that anything matters anymore, then you don't fight for the action. You're like, okay, if if it's all just going to crash and burn anyway, what's the point? And that takes away from the fact that, yes, we have made some irrevocable changes to our environment, but there's still the difference between really bad and just mostly bad. Well, it's true that individual actions may not change the world. Like me recycling um, my refundable drinks is not going to offset the same level of carbon as an oil tanker going from like Saudi Arabia to US to the US. Like that is not on an equivalent level. And we need that large scale action. Mm-hmm. I I don't think anyone goes like to see someone ch- making changes in their own life and goes, oh well, you know, my friend over here is living sustainably. So I think that means skin off my back. I don't need to do anything. It's through changing ourselves and leading by examples that we inspire wider change and motivate others. When you talk about um, individuals taking responsibility for themselves um, or taking responsibility for their own climate um, impact, there's sort of this idea that, you know, one of us isn't going to make a huge difference and it's only through collective action. I mean, Annabelle, you talked about the sense of despair that, there's really the the things that need to happen are way too big uh, for any one person to actually action. What are those things? What what are we uh, in your from your perspective? What is it that government needs to do to start turning things around, or at least 
dramatically scaling back our, our emissions? Um, I feel like definitely putting pressure on those like massive companies that do contribute to like a lot of the um, like pollution. Um, and I think just encouraging like um, sub- like the support of smaller and like local businesses or even just like sustainable companies is like super, super important because um, yeah, I think that like I was saying, those like big companies control a lot of kind of our pollution. And if they don't change, then like, I feel like that's probably going to really not make it a possibility for us to like reverse the effects or yeah of climate change so um yeah I think putting pressure on like those big companies that are major polluters is like super important and then just also like on local levels just doing the like small things that like in big numbers like they do make a huge difference I think that is also super important um and then one of the like, things that I think is like probably one of the most important things is like making cities just more green mm-hmm. and um, maintaining like green environments that we already have and like keeping those protected and, and safe. And do you see that that's something um, at a local level? Do you think that that's something that is happening effectively? Do you think communities are doing what they need to protect natural environments and biodiversity and ecosystems? I think we for sure have like made uh, a, a lot of progress in that area. And like, they, there are like a lot of different projects on the local level, especially that like are really, um, are really encouraging that. But I think there's always like, you can always do more. I don't think that doing too much is ever really like going to be a bad thing. So I feel like, um, like we have, we are doing maybe, um, enough, but I think we could be doing more if that makes sense. Like, I feel like we're doing maybe like the, not like the bare minimum, but like the minimum. And I think we could, raise that to do just like more and do you have like an example too like of something you really would love you know your community to do too that you think would be awesome as a response um I feel like one of the I was looking at I saw this video the other day of like um I think it was like some this program called like gorilla gardeners or something um Mm -hmm. in in LA yeah they were just basically talking about kind of like replacing a lot of the like cement that they have in the city with the green spaces and um also like changing rooftops to be like green roofs so I feel like that is something that would be like really awesome to have because having a green like basically putting plants all over um your roof like on just like even like the city hall building or whatever like doing that is like such a simple thing but like it has such a huge effect so and Kevin you talked about leading uh, by example as well and 
Do you have any examples of what governments you feel should be doing to tackle the problems that you're most concerned about? At risk of once again sounding like a radical, uh, not diluting themselves anymore. <laughs> I have seen governments on the national, provincial, and local levels live in a fantasy land for decades. Just last week, or a few weeks ago, with the world's denunciation of Russia after the Russian invasion of Ukraine mm -hmm. and subsequent denunciation of Russian oil, yeah, we had MLAs talking about how this was a huge opportunity for BC's energy sector to sell concentrated natural gas to Europe and the world. And yeah. this was going to boost everything. While at the same time, Morgan's government, this session of MLAs, has been talking about how BC can really lead Canada in, in environmental protections and reunifying everything. And quite simply, you cannot have both. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Annabelle's talked about how our government was at least meeting the minimum. I highly disagree. I don't think Canada has met a single emission standard it has ever set for itself. And we are not on track to meet the next ones. The Liberals like to talk about how, oh, uh, I mean, if you look at it objectively, yes, our emissions have grown, but also our economy has grown. And if you look at the rate, technically, we're growing the economy faster with less. It doesn't matter. We like to, I like to think that we have this vision of ourselves as humans, as ingenious, and we can tech ourselves out of everything, invent new solutions. Mm -hmm. But green tech is not going to get us out of this. More electric cars, more little gadgets that market themselves as sustainable is not going to somehow get us out of this crisis. I mean, right. if you look at electric cars, yes, they're better at some level on the long term than gas cars, but the rare earth minerals that go into making them, if we want to transition an entire nation's automobiles to electric cars, that's still a huge carbon sink. We're not green teching ourselves out of this. So we have to acknowledge that there are going to be some sacrifices. People are going to lose their jobs. Bad things will happen, but that's the price we have to pay for not acting on it sooner. And I, I can appreciate, you know, you said governments need to stop diluting themselves. And certainly you're right. Um, speaking as somebody who works in climate, you, um, we as a country have not met, met any of our targets. So yeah, if targets are not working and, you know, we're diluting ourselves, do you have any examples of governments that you think are, are making the right moves, small or big? I know that Ireland declared the climate crisis an actual emergency, which is not something that Canada's done. But I mean, to be completely honest, not really. It's more and more disheartening. I think back when Trump was president, he pulled the United States out of the Paris Accords. And that's only more of a sign to me that we're not seeing the level of international cooperation that's necessary to overcome this because at heart the climate issue is a global issue a country's carbon does not stay in that country uh, a ton of co2 emitted in canada 
can affect people from Bangladesh to Kiribati. Like there is, so what we need is a unified solution here. But people are too busy pointing fingers. People are like, oh yeah, China's the biggest polluter or oh no, you know, Britain got the industrial revolution first. So they're, if you look over time, Britain's the biggest like. But instead of put pointing fingers and playing the blame game now, we have to recognize what needs to be done to move forward. And looking at waves of isolationism that are rocking through the world, people, and this can probably be at least in some part attributed to economic hardship and the COVID-19 pandemic, when people go through difficulties, they tend to care a little bit more about themselves. We, we see a lot of countries having movements towards isolationism. Like, Macron was just re-elected president, but Marie Le Pen showed a significant increase in her following compared to the last election. And in basically every country around the world, you you can see people going anti-EU, anti-UN. Um, and this is just the peak of what has been a long and steady rise up to that point. But yeah, that makes me think that we're not going to see the international cooperation we need. We're going to fall to the tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a lot it's a lot to be concerned about, and certainly both have articulated a lot of you know big and frightening issues. I think quite well. We often hear um, that you know youth are like the um, generation, of course, that people look to for hope. Um, I've got my own thoughts on that about about how I feel about that, especially when we live in such I think challenging times. But how do you feel about that? Do you get that message from folks that you you're going to save the future? You know, the future is in you. Um, and if you do, how do you, how does that, how does that sit with you? Um, I feel like it's not only like a, a pressure that like, um, older people are putting on us, but also like ourselves because it's, it is like our future. So I think it does really matter to us as well. So I think there's not only like, I guess, like pressure from outside sources, but like also like ourselves collectively as like youth and like um just individually like there is that kind of um I guess like expectation that we have to like um we have to like change the world I guess but I don't know I think that can be sometimes overwhelming but um it's also like I guess kind of a reality so you kind of just have to accept it and um try your best but I also like I also think that maybe it would be better if we collectively all work together than put like all of the um like all of this pressure on just youth I don't think that that's necessarily like I think that we do, like, there is an element of collectivism when it comes to the climate crisis, but, like, I I don't know. I feel like we could be doing way more to just, like, work together. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Like Calvin said as well, like, it isn't 
like one country by country like it is an international problem because it affects everybody what about you calvin do you have that sense that it's all on your shoulders to figure this thing out a a little bit because um just to say things coarsely like i haven't been saying things coarsely this entire time (laughs) um the youth are going to be the only ones alive when this gets real bad like i feel like at a certain level if i'm like 70 i'm thinking i ain't got that long anyway (laughs) so so the pressure is on us to change things but i am just able to vote i i turned 18 um just last month but i'm not going to get an opportunity to for another well, at least at the federal level, for another five years. I was going to say, you can vote on October 15th, so don't... So a lot of the pressure is on our shoulders. When action is taken, it's not taken seriously. Like, I'm thinking about Greta Thunberg. She made headlines around the world, got to speak at the UN created an entire social movement right the school strike for climate she's also faced such an immense amount of backlash of like ah she doesn't know like probably not around from this group of people that are listening to this wonderful podcast but i've seen comments from people around the world that's like ah she doesn't know what she's doing ah she's a hypocrite and like what she managed to speak at the UN but what came from that I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of pressure but no path for us like you're pushing us forward into a brick wall oh that's a what an excellent and horrible visual all at once (laughs) (laughs) really good imagery I think maybe with, um, you know, you've, you've both expressed this sort of climate despair and that this weighs heavily on you both. And, and then the pressure to actually solve this um, weighs heavily on you both. Is there anything about it that, the, that makes you feel hopeful? Is there any point where you think there's still a chance for us to do good here and, and to make things, to make this world a better place? I think the fact that there, like, are um, people that are, like, still trying to, like, make change um, is definitely encouraging. Like, I think, how can that not be? Like, if you don't have anyone who's still, like, supporting the movement or um, who's actually trying to, like, make real change, then you don't, like, there, there can't really be any hope. But the fact that there are people who are doing that... Um, I think just that is like hopeful. Sorry, can you hear my dog in the background? We have a guest. Yeah, I I think um, like especially when you see, I think like even on social media, like sometimes and not all, everything you see is like always super true, but for like um, like the whole th- like story, but um, there are like positive things that you see that people are doing that like can be really encouraging um even that like video I saw about 
the out like in LA how they're trying to make it a more greener space like that is encouraging because I think that inspires other people to do the same so and Kelvin are the things that give you hope I I have a complicated relationship with climate hope because on the one hand I recognize it is good it is necessary even to get us out of this because there is nothing worse than despair because despair leads us to not take action because we don't think it matters at the same time I feel like sometimes people look for climate hope in the wrong places because it's so much easier to publish a headline about these big flashy things oh this new carbon capture technology got invented P.S. it's not going to be commercially viable for another decade or like this giant piece of climate artwork got put up P.S. it's going to get taken down in three days right people love seeing these big hopeful stories but what I what actually gives me hope I find is the small incremental boring levels of systemic change because that's what that's what's difficult right it's it's always so easy to make a big speech if, if you really want to throw a bunch of money at a charity and that's not what we need we need what we need is to just honestly rethink the way our society is from the ground up and there are people who are doing that thinking and making that effort so that's that's what gives me hope but i guess i guess what i'm saying is i want deeds not words yeah i think i think that's fair and i share your complicated relationship with climate hope uh i gave a speech once where i talked about how i didn't hope for a better climate just in the same way that i don't hope to have dinner you know tonight and i needed people to act and one of the things I learned uh, very abruptly from the audience I was speaking to, which were people older than me, and I was considered booth at this time, was they didn't like my attack on hope. And, you know, about 15 years later, I can still say that I don't hope for a better climate. I work, you know, for a better climate. And I think that's really the only justice-based way, justice way forward. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I want to say, I thank you for bringing that up because I do think it is a, a complicated relationship given the size and the urgency, you know, of the issue. And you're both clearly taking these issues very seriously. And, and I want to thank you, um, on behalf of Dean and I for coming on to the podcast and having your say, um, you know, as well. And hopefully that inspires other young people too. Um, even though you both like pie pretty much, I mean, I still, still found this to be an enjoyable discussion. <laughs> What about you, you, yes, I was going to say you redeemed yourselves in spite of your allegiance to the pie people. Thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us. I've really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate the benefit of your, your perspective and, and your willingness to share it with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, this is a good discussion. Well, those were pretty fantastic conversations, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating insight there from four of four of the young people. <laughs> yeah, four of the youths who joined yes. us. Yes. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was really nice to get to talk to them and, uh, perhaps a little bit concerning, you know, too, about how concerned they are about just the overall state, I think of politics, you know, and what, what government's really doing it. I feel like they, I feel like they were really clear on how let down they feel. What would you say? Yeah, I really got that impression too. Like a lot of comments about, you know, being, feeling like there's, this is, there this is a time of despair and there's not much to feel hopeful about you certainly hear like climate anxiety and you know mm-hmm. people fearful about the, their cost of living and just the state of our society um but it really is like to have that reinforced in these conversations really that's that's very troubling yeah and how like i'm curious too like how does it feel for you when you consider that you're running for mayor you know, and, and you've you've sat in the council seat, you know, yourself um, before to hear like this level of distrust in government, you know, in particular um, from our guests today. What's uh, what reflections do you have? You know, um, I'm curious about that. For, for those of us who are are running for elected office, who have aspirations to be elected officials, I think it, it's this kind of reality check hearing from young voters uh, that there is that lack of trust and that there's a lot of work to do to restore that trust. And I think it begins with um, a, a greater degree of, of accountability and transparency around decision-making. And, um, and I think being honest with people about what can realistically be achieved, not, uh, not trying to sell people on a, on a long mm-hmm. shot vision, but being realistic about the things that we can change and what it's going to take in order to change them. I'm glad to hear that. And I think I think our guests will be too. Um, shall we get more into the breakdown? Shall we get into the fact check portion of the breakdown? Yeah, let's check some facts. <laughs> All right. So yeah, one, one of our guests talked about, um, have any of the climate targets in Canada been met? And uh, the sad answer is no, they were right. That none, none have been met and none that I'm aware of uh, provincially um, as well. We seem to have a history in this country of at least we have moved towards climate action planning, you know, sort of in a broad sense. We have committed to targets, um, you know, sometimes with the uh, with the UNFCCC or the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, sometimes not, you know, depending on which federal government, speaking federally at the time we've had. Um, and so now um, I think the conversation really becomes about how, um, how quickly are we acting though? You know, the target, the target game, really kind of is a game. I mean, we've set them and it's not to say that they're not important, but I think there's been uh, an overemphasis on target setting and not enough of a focus on action implementation. What's actually reducing emissions? Are we scaling that up? Um, you know, kind of thing too. And so I think the, I think where we set the focus needs to be less on the targets and more on actually what actions are happening and, you know, how quickly are we achieving them? But what are your thoughts on that? I wonder that too. And I've heard you say that before about targets um, and that, I mean, they are definitely things that, that capture attention when it comes to reporting out. Um, and it, it, I think, shows the distance we have yet to travel in order to make a meaningful impact on our greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, like Saanich is just another example with a community with you know, 2030 uh, emission reduction targets and 2050 emission reduction targets or net zero um, targets. And they're also way off the mark. Um, But I think what needs to be front and center is what are those 
things that are happening that are getting us closer? And then what do we need to seriously amp up in order to, to start dramatically reducing our emissions? Yeah, I think the next thing up is carbon budgets. That's where the conversation is largely mm -hmm. going. Edmonton became the first city in Canada to adopt that measure. And really, it's just if you think about we have a financial budget, we need to have a carbon budget too. And when you think about how municipalities work, um, you know, and having worked in them myself, you know, as well, you know, it's the same thing. What What is measured gets managed, you know, mm -hmm. and then setting caps on, on things like budgets. We have budget targets and we meet them for the most part, you know, kind of thing too. We, we tend to overall in government meet budget targets better than we've met climate targets. So perhaps some of the similar mechanisms that apply there might, uh, climate might benefit from them as well. Yeah, including maybe like um, a financial holdback for ministers responsible in the same way that they had been doing that here in the province when, when the ministries didn't meet their fiscal targets. Um, we need to maybe look at something like that for our, our emission targets. Ooh, I sense perhaps a podcast episode on this is probably. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. And we uh, had a, a fact around housing. You want to dig into that? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, Isaac mentioned uh, in his comments that he had seen an 18% increase um, from one year to the next in housing across Canada. I think in some parts of Canada, including Vancouver and Greater Victoria, it was higher than this, but 18% um, increase. Um, compared to two and a half percent increase in inflation. Now that's looking at last year's inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was using that as an argument for just how dramatically the cost of housing has gone up um, relative to all other costs, which of course we know are also going up. And he sort of laid the blame um, squarely at the feet of local government. He referenced um, a report that the Union of BC Municipalities put out um, where they then found themselves in disagreement with David Eby, the minister uh, responsible for housing in this province, over the role that local government has played in constraining the availability of new homes. And, and I, I think it's worth um, just acknowledging that I think local governments have played a significant role in that. Um, I don't think there's anything nefarious about what's going on, but I do think that the, the reality is that approvals, processes, and rezonings, and development permits, and everything required in order to make housing happen has been a real break on um, the creation of housing and new housing availability that mm -hmm. would hopefully slow that very dramatic increase in costs. Um, I don't think supply is the only uh, only reason that we've seen housing prices go up quite so dramatically, but certainly a constrained supply um, has had a major effect. And I think local governments bear a, a considerable amount of responsibility for that constrained supply. Yeah. And I think it's important. I think it's important to note that too, and also for local politicians to really realize the amount of impact they can have on this crisis then too. There's There's more they have access to more levers, I think, than they realize, you know, too. And again, it's another, it's another area where we need to see an acceleration of action. And it's, I think, together, even with climate, when we think about what our guests have said, too, about this declining trust in government, I think it's, we, al we almost have too many crises, we do have too many crises every day that we're, you know, that are impacting the quality of life, uh, quality of life for people who live in Saanich, for people who live, you know, in Vancouver Island, and of course, 
in the in the entire country, right? It's it's hard to see a housing crisis, you know, in discussion every day. It's hard to see the climate crisis, um, the toxic drug supply crisis, you know, kind of thing too. And that's just three. Mm-hmm. There's there's more that we could list. So yeah, I I really am feeling you know what what uh, what was spoken about you know in this particular episode is it's a lot. It's a lot to handle and consider, but, you know, people that do have a, an ability to have a, a larger impact are people who have power, people who are in elected office. So, so some good feedback, I think, for them, you know, as mm-hmm. well. What do you think, though, overall? Do you think the kids are all right, Dean? You know, you, you hear rhetorically people talk about future generations. When we, when we actually get a chance to hear from those future generations who are, you know, coming of age, they will be the next group of folks in, in the seats of, um, of the decision makers, they really do have some really hard realities that they have to confront. I think uh, perhaps more so than, than generations previous um, have had to consider. And uh, I think that any decision we're making needs to bear that in mind. We need to make sure that this is a, a place and a planet that uh, is, is something that those future generations are going to be able to to live on and uh, that they're going to have places to live in. And I think that what we heard from, from today's comments are that they don't feel like those considerations are actually happening on their behalf, that we're, we're going in the opposite direction. What impressed me was they're paying attention, you know, oh, quite, yeah. Yeah, and quite closely, which is, which is really great. Um, and perhaps maybe the, Maybe the silver lining, as you know, I'm not a fan of hope, right? I'm I'm much more of a fan of action <laughs> than I am of hope. But you know, perhaps it's the urgency that these multiple crises present, and the fact that they're paying attention, you know, is actually going to move. I think more elected officials um, much faster than they have been responding, you know, sort of so far. I mean, certainly, I think that's what we're going to need, or I think we face a, I think we face a grimmer future, and definitely don't want to end on that kind of a note, but. We, you know, we had a good and serious set of discussions, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in and of itself is needed and is important. And I was really glad to see that for sure. Well, and I, I think in spite of the comments around distrust or mistrust of politicians, um, I think we certainly spoke to four people who will be voters. And yeah. uh, I, I think if um, they're a reflection of the kind of thoughtfulness uh, about people who are in positions of power, I think that there will be an awful lot of, uh, of voters who will be coming out to make sure that their voices are heard and that uh, these things that really matter to them and affect them deeply um, are part of the conversations in elections and uh, inform um, what goes on around council tables and in the legislature and in the House of Commons. Well, and certainly if, if what's happening now doesn't get more voters, Um, out, then we can always go with my idea of mandatory voting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this was a great episode. I hope our listeners um, enjoy it as well. Please keep letting us know what you think, um, who you'd like to hear from, or what topics you would like us to cover on Sandwich Land. We're more than happy um, to take that feedback. We have some really good episodes scheduled, you know, coming up as well. And you can, of course, subscribe to this podcast wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. And, and any any final words, Dean? I think we need to find more cake people. I think we're uh, yeah. we're really on the losing yeah. end of this pie cake battle so far. So um, I think we need to start stacking the deck with cake people. <laughs> Let me 
a good screener question now for our future for future guests. <laughs> Love it. All right, Dean, see you in the next podcast. All right. Thanks, Naomi.